Uh, Take your Bibles, if you would, and uh, open up to Romans uh, chapter 6. We'll be in Romans chapter 6, verses uh, 5 through 11 uh, this morning. Romans chapter 6, starting in verse 5. Follow along as we read God's Word. For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. We know that our old self was crucified uh, with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought uh, to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. The one who has died, uh, for the one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. Uh, We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. And the life he lives, he lives to God. So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. Let's open with a word of prayer this morning. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, we just want to delight ourselves in you. And we want to uh, delight ourselves in your word. Uh, We ask that your spirit would be living and active in our midst and in our hearts through the power of the word of God, that he would convict us and direct us and that we would uh, respond to you and your grace. We thank you for the grace that you've given us in Jesus Christ. And it's through him uh, that we uh, approach uh, the Lord and come to you. We thank you for this. In Jesus name we pray. Amen. One of the guys in church history had a had a saying. Uh, his name was was John Owen. Uh, he was a Puritan. He lived uh, in England during the time of Cromwell and some of those things going on. He had a he had a saying, um, be killing sin uh, or it will be killing you. That that, as I said last week, the fight against sin is is deadly serious. Some of you uh, are veterans here in our midst and you've been in in situations, I'm sure, that have been uh, life or death or you know of people uh, who have been in combat situations. And it's one of those things where if you're in a combat situation, they are attacking you and you need to fight back. You don't you don't get to say, well, you know, I'm I'm not really ready for this fight. I I don't want to do this here and now. Let's let's postpone it a couple of days. Then I'll be ready. If if they are coming at you, you have to be prepared. You have to fight back. You need to also recognize uh, whose team you on are on. You are in uh, the United States military in those situations. And you have all the support and resources of that military uh, behind you. And so you can engage in that battle with a measure of confidence. You know who is fighting with you and who and what you are, are fighting for. The same is, is very true when it comes to the battle against sin. You need to know who you, is with you, who you are fighting for, and who has given you the power and the resources uh, to fight the battle against indwelling sin, the temptations that crop up in our lives and the desires to do these things. You need to understand who you are. When you are in the military, you put on a uniform. 
And that represents you. And when you go into that battle, you go in with that representation. In the same way, when you fight against sin in your Christian life, you go into the battle as one who is united to Jesus Christ. And so we need to start, as we think about the battle with sin, we need to start with this understanding of who am I? Because the strength to fight indwelling sin, the strength to fight the temptations that come up, does not come from within me, but from Christ who is within me. And so we need to see this morning, this passage is about who we are in Jesus and what the benefits that are that we have with him. Our main point this morning is simply this. Consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God. You are dead to sin and alive to God because of the reality of being in Jesus Christ. And we talked last week about our, our, the symbolism of our baptism, that spiritual participation, that we are baptized into Jesus' death and baptized into his resurrection. And we're going to continue with some of that theme this morning of participating in him. But we're doing it with an eye towards this. Consider who you are. The battle with sin starts with knowing who you are in Jesus Christ. Sometimes when we go through difficulties and hardships, and, and maybe I've had this happen with some of my kids, you, you give them a task to do that stretches them, and, and, and they sit down and they shrug their shoulders and they say, I can't do it. I can't do it. And sometimes that's how we can be when it comes to the battle of sin with sin. And we, we get overwhelmed by the temptation and we're tempted to say, I can't do it. You need to go back and consider who you are in Jesus Christ. Consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God and tap into the resources that he's given us. First, this morning, as a believer, you are a partaker in the death of Christ. So we're going to break this passage up into three points and, and we'll talk about the death and the resurrection and then the implications of it. So as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are a partaker in his death. All the benefits that he has secured on the cross are coming now to you. We have become united with his Jesus in his death. Look at Romans chapter six, verse five. For we have been united with him in a death like his. If we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. And just just take that first part of that statement. If we've been united with him in a death like his. That is the point that Paul has been making. That we are united with him in his death. That we participate in it and share in the benefits. And it's almost to the extent that just as if you had died yourself, you are liberated from the enslavement to sin now. And so you'll see back in chapter uh, six, verse three, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Do you know that? Do you know that you belong in Jesus Christ in that way? And he continues the thought. If that's true, 
And then he's going to go on to the resurrection. But notice in verse 6, then, related to this death that we share in Jesus, that, that all the benefits are, are covering us and flowing to us, the old self has been crucified with Christ. Look at verse 6. We know that our old self was crucified in with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. What is the old self there? Some of your translations might even say the old man. It's who we are in Adam. Remember a few weeks ago that because of Adam's sin, we are all born under death and we are all born in sin. It's this idea that we are enslaved to sin. This is the old self. This is who I was. So you see, if you flip back to uh, Romans chapter 3, verse 9, Paul is culminating his argument that everyone is a sinner. And he says this, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jew and Greeks, are under sin. You think of sin as, as being something that that puts its boot on our necks. We are under it. It is the authority. It is the enslaving power. As an unbeliever, we are entrapped and enslaved to our sin. We are under it. Just as Jesus says in John 8.34, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever practices sin is a slave to sin. As an unbeliever, we delight in those things. We, we find a perverse sense of joy rebelling against God. Even when we begin to feel the consequences of our sins, we are still trapped in it. It is our motivation. Uh, it is our driving force. I'm going to sin. You think of Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1, 2, and 3, describing who we were before we were Christians. And notice he uses the past tense language. You were dead in the trespasses and sin, in the trespasses and sin in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we were by nature, like the rest of mankind, children of wrath. We are enslaved to this sin. We are, are dead in it. And we delight in, in being this child of disobedience. This living in rebellion, following our, our passions and our desires. And Paul is saying, if you are a believer in Christ, that in you has been put to death. Now we still have the presence of sin. But we are no longer dead in our sins. We are no longer under the enslaving power of it. We may face real temptations and we will face them. And we may even at times yield to them. 
But sin ultimately is not our master. The Lord Jesus Christ is. So Ephesians 2, 4 and 5, Paul says this, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even while we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. How does God work this salvation in you? He moves you from death to life. And He moves you from death in your sins by you coming to participate in the death of Jesus. So you die to sin. The old self, who we were, is crucified so that we can be now made alive in Christ. It is a change in the reality of who I am. I was in Adam. I am now in Christ. You see, we are not and we should not be sort of a schizophrenic individual. And I mean that in a spiritual sense. Sometimes we think uh, in our life because we're facing sin that we are sort of half in the old self and half in the new self. But the Bible teaches us that this old self has been crucified and now it gives us the exhortation, so don't live like that. You can fall into temptation and try to live like that, but it's like, why would you want to? That's not who you are anymore. Going back to the analogy of of a battle and in an army, and if you were to defect from one army and go to another army, you would take off that old uniform and you would renounce your your loyalty to that army. Say you wanted to to renounce being a, a terrorist or being a bad guy or whatever, and you would make a new pledge of allegiance and you would, if they let you, of course, in, in theory, this illustration, you would put on a new uniform. And you would have that new uniform on. And so you would not go back and fight anymore on that side of the battle. The same is true in our liberation from sin. Colossians chapter 3, verses 9 and 10. He's giving a whole bunch of moral exhortations. And he says, Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of the Creator. There has been in the believer a fundamental change at the core of who you are. Scripture describes us as being a partaker in the divine nature in Second Peter. That God is at work in you and has moved you from death in your sins to life. You are, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, a new creation. You need to know which uniform you now have on because you are in union with Christ. And that becomes the motivation for how we live the Christian life. So you'll notice here that you are freed from sin. Verse 7, for the one who has died has been set free from sin. Who is the one who's died? The believer. You have come to share in Jesus' death. And it's just as if you have died. This is about a positional change 
that takes place in us, there is fundamentally something new in you as the life, as a believer in your life. Live that way is going to be Paul's exhortation. This is who you are. Now, work and grow and, and fight this good fight because of the work of what Christ has done. Do you see how you have this fueling, if you will? This empowering, if you will? Christ doesn't just liberate you from the guilt of sin. Christ liberates you from your enslavement to it. From the bondage that we are in it where our internal self delights in sin. God has given you the Holy Spirit. Why is it that as a believer you even want to fight against sin? Have you ever been in one of those situations where where you're struggling against sin and you really, really, really want to resist and and you just don't know if you can and, and maybe you even feel overwhelmed And you think to yourself, there's no way I'm going to defeat this sin. Maybe maybe you even get to the point where you say, I I just wonder where where is God in this? Why, Why is he not here? Am I really saved? Maybe you even go so far as to say. But back up a second and ask yourself this. Why do you want to resist sin? Where does that motivation come from? Just even that desire to fight it, to say, I really wish I could get this monkey off my back and not be overwhelmed by this temptation. That is a working of the Holy Spirit. Most of you, uh, well, all of us have different backgrounds from before we were were saved. Some of you perhaps um, grew up mostly in a Christian home and were saved very young. Others were not. And you can really easily remember Before you were saved, you would sin and you didn't care. You didn't desire to resist. Why is it that you desire to resist now? Because you have died to sin and the work of Christ has begun in you. And so the motivation is to start and to say, whose team am I on? How do I consider myself? I am dead to these sins and I need to grasp that reality. For the one who has died has been set free from sin. Uh, The word here is actually we've been justified from sin. Justified typically means we've been declared righteous. but, But Paul has the sense here in using this word that we're vindicated from sin. It's a good English translation to say we are set free from it. Typically, when he uses justification, he he uses it to describe what we have. We are declared righteous. We, We receive a righteousness from Christ. Here, he uses it to describe something we are are pulled away from. We are separated from. We are justified or liberated or vindicated or set free from sin and its enslaving power. Um. This might be a bad analogy, but think of this as simply an analogy. Think of someone who is married. And when you are married, you are, I don't want to say enslaved and in bondage, but, but you are under a vow. And, and you are tied to that vow. 
when you die or when someone dies in the marriage, the spouse that is left is freed from that vow. And and again, this is just an analogy. I'm not saying marriage is enslavement. But but the point is, in marriage, you are in union with each other, and it is only separated by death. When you are in sin, you are enslaved and in union with that sin. And the only way to be separated is to go through a death-like experience. And normally death would be the the punishment and the consequences for our sin. But here, because we participate in Jesus' death, because it applies to us, it is just as if we have died. We are liberated from that bondage to sin. So, two applications. One, salvation entails a fundamental transformation of who I am. Remember Paul had started this section with this idea of, you know, well, if we're saved by grace, I can just go on sinning, right? God's going to forgive me. I can, I can just live however I want and keep on sinning. And then he says, no, by no means. Why? Because you are fundamentally transformed. You've put on that new army uniform in Christ. Why would you go back and fight for the bad guys again? There is a fundamental transformation of who you are. And just kind of as a challenge, do you recognize that in in your life? And, And I'll fully admit, even in my own life, sometimes I don't feel changed. Sometimes, you know, you struggle with sin and you you wonder, where is this working of this reality? But you go back to the cross of Jesus Christ. You look to him and you say, this is who I am. You start with a a knowledge of who you are in Jesus Christ. Apply that to your life. Recognize that in your battle with sin. Sometimes you just need to to reset yourself and say, whoa, wait a minute. Who do I really belong to here? It's an encouragement to us. It's a joy that, that Christ has so liberated me. Look at what He's done. He's moved me from this enslavement into into His family, into being in Him. The second application is this. You are truly free. The exhortations in Scripture always start with a grounding of who we are. And then that brings us the motivation to go on and live like this. Whenever Scripture in the New Testament brings some sort of command, you look in the context and typically, particularly in Paul's letters, he has already laid some sort of foundation for this is who you are first. Now, go, be this way, live this way, respond to the grace that you have given. The, the fuel, if we can say that, the motivation for, for putting aside sin, for, for living out this freedom, for not giving in in your struggles against your sins, is look at who you are. Start there. Don't start adding a whole bunch of extra commands, although commands are good in this sense. But start with, this is who I am, and then move on and say, now, how has Christ empowered me? 
to walk in him. Fighting sin is about going back to Jesus Christ and relying on him. Tapping into him, if we can say that. Reading your Bible, spending time in prayer, asking for help, either from Christ or even from your church family. The point is the struggle with sin is real. It is present in us. Temptation is real. It's a fact of the Christian life. You are not abnormal that you're facing a struggle with sin. But also, don't give up the fight because Christ has freed you. Second, this morning, as a believer, we will share in the resurrection of Jesus. So there's this connection not only to his death, but also to his resurrection. And this is where we get our understanding of we have new life in Christ. And we even begin to experience that now. So Paul says here with an eye towards the future that we will share in Christ's resurrection. So again, going back to Romans 6, 5, if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. You as a believer, how do you know you have eternal life? How do you know that you will one day have a resurrection? If you die before the Lord Jesus Christ returns, your body goes into the grave. Your spirit goes into the presence of the Lord. You will dwell with him. But that's not the final and ultimate hope. That's just kind of like the temporary hope. That's going to be a great thing. But then as the Lord Jesus returns, your body comes up out of the grave and your spirit coming down with him gets united and you get a resurrection body. That is the final hope. And if we're alive when Jesus comes, it says we're going to be caught up in the air with him and get a resurrected body. So Paul says, if we've died with him, if we've come to share in this death, we believe that we will also live with him. Paul describes the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15, 23. But to each in his own order, Christ's resurrection, the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. We are, we are so tied and connected to Jesus Christ that the imagery of his resurrection is the imagery of first fruits. So it's the imagery of if you have a field or you have, let's, let's go with a garden analogy. Uh, my wife likes to grow tomatoes, although she didn't do it this year. Uh, but some of them are still coming up, actually. And so you, you get tomatoes, right? And you always look forward to that first crop. And you, you pick the first ones. And you pick them off. And then, unless you have bad weather or your crop gets ruined by bugs or something, there, there's one harvest of tomatoes and it spreads out. But you, you pick them at, at various times. And in the Old Testament, you would take of your harvest the first fruits and you would give it to the Lord. And it was a, a statement of I am trusting that the rest of the crop will come in because I am giving you the first. I am giving you the best. And if something happens, I won't have anything to eat. But the idea is the first fruits is connected to the whole harvest. And so here in this resurrection language, Jesus' resurrection is the first fruit. We're the rest of the harvest. And just as Jesus rose from the dead, we certainly believe we will rise from the dead. Why? Because we're connected to Jesus Christ. 
We share in His death. How much more will we share in and receive the benefits of His resurrection? Jesus, even in the Gospel of John, promises this. Jesus says this, And this is the will of Him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that He has given me, but I will raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of the Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Me should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. So we died with Christ so that we will live with Him. Look at verse 8. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. We will reign with Him. We will rule. We will have a resurrection life. Look at verses 6 and 9. What would, or I'm sorry, look at verse 9 and 10 of chapter 6. What was Christ's experience? It says, we know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. For the death He died, He died to sin once for all, but the life He lives, He lives to God. Notice this connection. And Paul is explaining what the death of Christ has done. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Why will Christ never die again? Because He has a resurrection body now. It's an immortal body, as 1 Corinthians 15 describes it. So think about this. Jesus Christ came into the world born in the manger of the Virgin Mary. He came in innocent and perfect without sin, morally. But He also came in with a body that had physical weakness. It could die, right? Jesus Christ died on the cross. Therefore, He had to have a body that could actually die. And when He dies, He is under the dominion of death. You could literally translate this word. He is under the lordship of death. Think about that. The Lord of all heaven and earth, as to His human nature, is under the lordship of death. It has power over Him. It had dominion over Him. For those three days that He is in the grave, death ruled over His human nature. Now, Jesus Christ, through this whole process, is still and continues to be truly God. But in terms of His humanity, He comes in humility... He comes in a weak, frail human body. You think about how he got hungry. You think about how he got tired in his ministry. You think about how he sweat drops of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane. And you think about how he died. And death in those moments seemed to be winning. But he's raised from the dead. And what does it mean that he's raised from the dead? Death no longer has dominion over him. Acts 2.24 God raised him up, loosening the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. So, Jesus Christ died to sin, paying the penalty once for all time is the emphasis here when it says once for all. He is no longer able to die ever again. And now what? Now he lives for God. Now, that's not saying that, that Jesus Christ didn't live for God before 
uh, in his earthly life. No, he, he certainly lived for God and obeyed God and kept God's word. But, but this is the idea that, that now he lives in this resurrection life. Now he is crowned in, in the glory of God and that glory he had before the foundations of the world. Now it radiates out. He doesn't have a body of weakness that can die again. He has a body of power and might and, and the fullness of the Holy Spirit. It's a resurrection body. And it is awesome. And the idea is we will come to share in that. We will come to participate in that. The Scriptures say in 1 Corinthians 15, for this perishable body must put on the imperishable. This mortal body must put on immortality. When perishable puts on imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? For the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be unto God who gives us the victory in Christ Jesus. That Christ Himself went under death and moved into resurrection life so that our sins might be put to death. And not only the punishment is paid for, but the power of sin is removed. And one day in your resurrection body, the presence of of sin will be removed. And so the exhortation is this. You know that you have died with Christ. And you know that a bodily resurrection is coming. That's not there yet, right? Uh, None of us have resurrection bodies yet. But the exhortation is live for God now. Paul gets a lot of Uh, if I can say it this way, and please understand what I'm saying, he gets a lot of mileage out of the imagery of death and resurrection. In other words, he applies it in in so many different facets that even he talks about us inwardly, we are alive now in a, a sort of spiritual resurrection. Here the focus is on we're dead and we will have a future resurrection, but the idea is Jesus lives for God now. If you've died with Jesus How should you live now? You live as one alive to God. Why is it that I shouldn't go back and sin? Why is it that I shouldn't just go on sinning and say, well, you know, it doesn't matter. I'm I'm forgiven. One, you've died to that. And if you're dead to that, how can you even contemplate living that way? Second, Christ is alive and living for God. And if you're in Christ, how then now should you live? Alive to God. What does that mean? It means I yield to Him. It means I work at obeying His commands. It means I am under His authority and lordship. That I have been removed from being under the dominion of sin just as Christ was removed from being under the dominion of death. And so I am under the lordship and authority of Christ because I am in union with Him. I have a relationship with Him. He's transferred me from one state to the other. Let that be your motivation. And this really then is 
our third point this morning. Therefore, now, as a believer, walk in a life with God. You see what Paul has done. He he has laid this foundation and he has said, this is who you are. Now, go and live that way. I am told, and, and you men that have been in the military will have to correct me afterwards if I'm wrong, but I am told that in the military, one of the strongest things that, that compels you uh, to continue in the fight is the buddy who is next to you, with you. That, that men will, will lay down their lives for their friends. They will do the mission because they're told, but when the mission gets really hard, what really is on the line is there's that sense of, I can't give up because I can't let down the guy next to me. We need that sense of, I can't give up because the guy next to me is Jesus Christ and I'm united to Him. Look at what He has done for you. He died on the cross. He took all the weight of the wrath of God for you. He has given you now a new life in His own resurrection. You have come to to share in some of the first fruits of the benefits of that. You get the Holy Spirit. He's crucified that old self, who you used to be in all of your sins. It's gone. You're changed. You are at the core of your being a new person. Consider who you are. Think about that. Recognize who is it that is in this fight with you. Who has put his life on the line, literally dying for you, to enable you to fight this battle? And fight it with a measure of confidence. Not fear in the sense of, I can't let him down, but a a confidence that he has made me his child and, and put me on his team. I am in the battle because he has won the battle Already consider yourself. It's even the same word that Paul has used earlier in chapter four for this idea of reckoning. And there it was a a legal transfer. But here it's a, a metaphor. Think of who you are. Consider yourself, you know, pause, take a break and and think about what this fight is and respond accordingly. There's a, a Bob Newhart sketch, uh, an older sketch that was on a, a TV show called Mad TV. And, and Bob Newhart plays this counselor. And this lady comes into the counselor, counselor and she's about to confess her problems. And he says, okay, I charge $5 for the first five minutes. And after that, everything is free. And he said, I don't bill insurance. I take check, but I don't make change. $5 for the first five minutes. She's like, oh, yeah, okay, great. All right. Thinking she's got this huge deal. So she lays out her problems. She says, uh, I am deathly afraid of being buried alive in a box. And he listens as a counselor. Okay. Mm-hmm. She's like, I'm terrified. And he's like, so do you say you're claustrophobic? And she's like, yeah, yeah, I'm claustrophobic, deathly afraid. And so he goes, okay, I'm going to tell you two words. And she goes, oh, great. Okay. I'll, do I need to write these down? And he's like, well, 
It's kind of simple, but okay if you want to. And he looks at her and he just says, stop it. And she's like, what? He says, stop it. And she goes on and confesses this problem and, and, and continues to say other problems that she has. And he just keeps saying to her, stop it. Stop it. And, and it's making a mockery. And obviously, this is not a good counseling practice. However, just as an illustration, if you are in Jesus Christ, stop it. Stop sinning. Why? Because Christ is in you. Now, it's more complicated that and it is a, a real struggle. And, and I certainly don't want to minimize the fight against sin. But the first command is stop it. And why do we give that command? Because you've died to sin and you're alive with Jesus. Recognize who you are and stop it. You don't have to yield to sin. Again, I'm not minimizing temptation. Temptation can be huge sometimes in our life. And sometimes we, we absolutely need help with fighting sin. And if you come and talk to me about a sin that you're struggling with and you, you meet in my office, I'm not going to just sit and say, stop it. But the analogy is that you actually have the equipping power of the Lord Jesus Christ. That you actually can fight and resist sin. First, this morning, as you think about some uh, uh, applications, make use of the power that Christ has given you when you're fighting sin. Avail yourself to Jesus Christ. Turn to Him. The book of Hebrews says this, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Think about that. The Lord Jesus Christ, who never had any sin in Him, He never sinned. He was tempted. And He fought against temptation. And, and describing here, here as having weakness is to say He had that frail body. He was not a sinner. But you think about how He fasted for 40 days and then Satan came to tempt Him. He was hungry. Do you think he had to resist temptation there? Absolutely. Do you think it was hard for him to resist temptation? Yes. Not because he was a sinner. He wasn't a sinner. But because he had weakness. He had hunger. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he pours out in his prayers. And he sweats in drops of blood. That was, in a sense, weakness. He didn't sin, but man, he felt the weight. And so when you come to Jesus, you're coming to one who understands what it's like to resist temptation. Who better to find help from? And now he's in heaven as, as the victor, as the high priest. And, and it says, go to him. First thing you need to do in your struggle against sin is pray 
and go before the throne of grace. Maybe it's a quick prayer. Maybe it needs to be a long prayer. Maybe you need to get away to a quiet room depending on what the temptations are and how long you've been dealing with them or whatever. But you need to pray. Second, you need to recognize that as a Christian, your fight against sin is not unwinnable. Again, sometimes it feels unwinnable. Sometimes we get in those moments where it's kind of like we're surrounded by the enemy on all sides. And, and we just feel like resisting sin is pointless because it's just going to overrun me anyways. Take hope in Jesus. Remind yourself that the fight isn't unwinnable. Maybe you need to, to take a step back and think about what did Jesus do on the cross? Or you think about who am I in Jesus Christ? Maybe you need to meditate on on some scriptures, on some psalms, or on some of these passages in Romans or Ephesians that, that describe who we are. But as a Christian, your fight against sin is not unwinnable. Fighting sin entails turning to Jesus. Fighting sin, we fight sin from a position of being united with Christ and acknowledging that union with Christ. We cannot simply fight sin by making a bunch of rules. We fight sin by by going to Jesus. And sometimes rules and and boundaries can help us. You know, if you have a, a particular problem with alcohol, a good rule for you would be don't go to a place where you're going to face temptation. If you have a, a particular temptation with looking at inappropriate things on the Internet, maybe a good rule for you is to get some Internet software to protect you, to block certain sites or put the computer in a room where you can only surf on the Internet when other people are around. Those are good, helpful rules and boundaries. But the fight doesn't start with those things. The fight starts with who you are in Jesus. Turning to Him. Prayer. Reading the Word of God. Submitting yourself to Him. Confessing sins when you yield to them. That's where the battle starts. Out of that, maybe as a rule of thumb, you, you get some help. You put some rules. You, you hold yourself accountable to someone. You, you go to someone and you say, hey, look, I'm really struggling with this sin. I need you to check up on me once or twice a week to see how I'm doing. I need some encouragement sometimes. Other times I'm going to need someone that can just smack me around a little bit, so to speak, and remind me not to give up in my fight. Those are all good things but it flows out of who you are in Jesus. Let me leave you with these verses this morning. James 4, 7-10. Submit yourself, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your heart, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself before the Lord and He will exalt you. Is there some area in my life where I need to put off sin 
and put on Christ more? Is there some area in my life where I'm not recognizing the reality of the death and resurrection of Jesus? Am I walking in a way that in some area that I'm saying sin is my master here, even when I should know better because sin isn't my master? Lord, help me to live as one who is free from the enslaving power of sin, the freedom that you have granted. Let's close in a word of prayer. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we ask this morning that you would encourage us in the fights against temptations that we face, that you would encourage us to to yield ourselves to you more and more every day because you have moved us from death to life. You have liberated us from that enslavement to sin. Oh, Lord, let us not be a people who turn back to that. We ask that you would send the Holy Spirit, that you would cultivate in us the fruit of the Spirit, that we would enjoy offering ourselves to you as as slaves to righteousness, as the Scriptures say, because we are no longer slaves to sin. Oh, continue to work this change in us as many of us in various ways and places and at different times continue to fight this battle against sin that is still present in us but no longer enslaves us. We thank you for the work of the Lord Jesus Christ and we pray these things in His name. Amen.